my youth football coach had a repository, a massive repository of bad old jokes. Um, this was one of his favorites. One of his favorites. Guy's driving his truck along the edge of this canyon, big, 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 deep cliff, and, uh, and he loses control on some gravel. The truck goes spilling over the side. It's hanging on the edge. He manages to get out of the seatbelt, jump. He jumps out the window. The truck goes falling, crashing down, hundreds and hundreds of feet below, burning, and he doesn't quite get the edge, and he slides down, but he grabs a hold of a little branch that was sticking out from the edge of the cliff. And so he's hanging there, and he doesn't have the strength to get himself up. He can't see quite to the top, and so he... Feeling his strength ebb, he cries out, Help! Is anybody up there? And after a pause, he hears the voice of God Almighty. I am here. What is it you want? I want you to rescue me! Long, agonizing pause. And then he hears the voice of God again say, All right, I have it all set. Just let go of the branch. What? Let go of the branch. My hands are under you. I will catch you. And after another pause, he looks up and says, Is anybody else up there? <laughs> it's an old joke. It's a very bad joke. But it is remarkably applicable to our current Bible study in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is hanging by an emotional branch, folks. God speaks to him about trust and reality. But Habakkuk cries out, Is there somebody else up there? Here's the context. Very first part of Habakkuk, the prophet questioned God. He talked to God about all the evils, all the terrible things he saw in his decaying culture. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call out for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry. But you do not come to save. Now, of course, you and I only need to read a few sentences into Habakkuk and our own problems come to mind, right? Our own times of doubt and dissonance and hanging off a cliff. Every Christian I have ever known and nearly every person I've ever met struggles with some form of, of these great theological questions. The first question is always, is God God? That is, is he truly sovereign? Second question, is he at work? If he's God, then, then is, he, is he good at his job? Is he doing anything? The wise people, the ones who imitate Habakkuk, Turn to God himself with these questions. Stuart Briscoe captures this really nicely in his book, Hearing God's Voice Above the Noise. You and I are going to have doubts about God unless we don't think. But the big thing is to be careful how we handle the questions and watch how we express the doubts. If I bring the doubts and questions to God and seek his face about them, he will lead me to an answer. But if I turn away from him, if I isolate myself, if I throw the scriptures away, if I reject the church and its people, then I'm in trouble. You see, back in Habakkuk's first exchange with God, the Lord spoke. He, he answered the prophet through his word. By the way, that's always the way God answers our questions, through his word. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord replied, look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I'm doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. God says, in essence, I hear you. I understand all about the mess in your society, and I'm doing amazing things you can't comprehend. I am the Lord, and I have a plan. Now, think on that for a second. God is engaged. He is at work. In his language from Habakkuk 1.5, he's doing things we couldn't even believe. This is a wondrous positive answer to those two theological questions that all people face. God is God, and he is at work. Some time ago, many years ago, Pastor uh, C.G. Chappelle caught the, caught the import of this statement. He said this, God told the prophet, 
that he was at work. Herein lies an amazing fact, especially for modern people. God is at work. In a world that only considers that humans are at work, God works. Alongside the men at work signs that dot our lives stands another more important sign, God at work, close quote. That is an image worth remembering. In fact, I, I copied Chappelle's quote there into our notes. You'll, you'll find it in your bulletin. Open up your bulletin you got when you came in. If you're online with us, so glad to be with you. Uh, your host has given you a link that you can find. It'll take you to the notes and you'll see their God at work. However, however, this answer from Yahweh gives Habakkuk another pause. Since God is indeed at work, how can he work like this? In, in essence, God tells Habakkuk he is indeed at work, and his plan is to let some very rich people take over the world. I'm not making this up. God says the Babylonians, the ancient Chaldean peoples, are going to be, going to be rebirthed, so to speak. They're, their empire is going to have a whole new life, and they're going to overrun Habakkuk's homeland of Judah and wreck everything. That's the Lord's solution. In essence, Habakkuk 1.6 says, uh, here's one specific of my plan for you. I'm bringing in these awful, nasty, pagan Chaldeans to destroy your whole society. Don't you find that a tad unsettling? Habakkuk did more than a tad. Look, it would, okay, let's, America's not Judah, but let's just, let's just take this to our, to our time. It would be as if God said to all of you, look, I know American society is shot through with ugliness, and sovereignly I'm working on it. Here's my plan. I'm going to arm Iran and North Korea with nuclear weapons. I'm going to allow rioters and thought police to control your culture, and thus from within and without, I'm going to blow your life, your culture, and your country to pieces. Love Yahweh, right? <laughs> like Habakkuk, we think um, it's... It's great the Lord's working, but is he really going to have things play out like this? How is that best? Which takes us to a third great theological question. Everybody has to wrestle through this one as well. Is God working good? Is God's work good, or did the light at the end of the tunnel turn out to be a train? Right? In our, in our study this week, the prophet, he looks at God's game plan, and he wonders, how is, how is that good? And Habakkuk engages in further discussions with God. He doesn't actually say, is someone else up there? He, he doesn't want anybody else. This, this is awesome. Wonderfully, our forefather Habakkuk did what we should do. He wrestled with God about it. Hanging off of that cliff, Habakkuk yelled up to God. But instead of saying, is someone else up there? He really yelled out, about your game plan, Lord. I, I have some more questions. And you can no doubt understand why Habakkuk would like to discuss this some more. In response to God's revelation, Habakkuk asks three great questions. These are how can you questions. Three great how can you questions. You'll, you'll see these listed on the left side of your notes. First, he asks, how could God employ such nasty people in his plan? Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. And I don't do this very often. I, I really enjoy the Christian Standard Version, but I, I think this is a difficult passage. I'll explain why in a moment. And I think actually the New Living Translation does the best job with this particular couple of verses. So we'll read it from that. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you're pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Now catch Habakkuk's logic here. It's really important to understand his thinking. God is eternal, he says. He is from everlasting. By the way, it's a beautiful point, a beautiful way to depict the truth that God has no, no creation point. Why is that important? Because God's seen it all right? He's not surprised by anything. He's not swayed by the ups and downs of, of momentary culture. One of the reasons that you and I accept elders as our leaders is that they're eld. They're, they're old. They, they've lived a while, right? 
They're not swayed by the ups and downs. They've seen a few things. And even though it's hard to believe, each of our elders is not actually eternal. They have a birthday, however old they may seem. They are not from everlasting. God is eternal. That was just for you, Bob. Um, God is also holy. Do you you see that? He can't accept evil and call it good. That's impossible for him. God is pure holiness. Ducks don't say moo. You You don't use a football to play baseball. Rain doesn't go up, except maybe in Houston, where I think it's so humid, I don't know how people breathe. But, but God is holy. He is pure and undefiled in who he is. Habakkuk also notes that God keeps his word. And Yah- I know it's awesome. And, and Yahweh had unconditionally promised that a remnant of Israel would always survive. No matter what Israel does wrong, no matter how intricate God's plan, there will always be a seed of Abraham living on this earth. That's why Habakkuk says, you do not plan to wipe us out. God keeps his word. Look at what the Lord spoke to the Jews through the, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 46. I'd like you to read with me. Join me on the underlined part of the text. God says, listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all you who remain in Israel. I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. I will be your God through your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. Thank you. That is the character of God beautifully exposed in Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk confesses that he knows this to be true of God. What he's saying is he knows that God is a loving father to Judah. And yet, Habakkuk fears that Yahweh may be turning into a bad parent. You know, it seems to him as if the Lord is acting less like what he told Isaiah and more like an absent father who is throwing the family fortune out the window while the kids back home go hungry. God is not that kind of parent. You better not be either. Um, But that's what it looks like to Habakkuk. God appears to be changing in his character. It appears he's not keeping his word. That's the issue in verse 13. You're pure. You cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up a people more righteous than they? Okay, okay, he says. So God's going to use wicked people as part of his game plan. Fine, but how can he favor these sinful wretches? How can he treat kindly people who, who violate all his commands? Why is he giving the best candy to the bad kids? Now, I know some, some, of you, some of you are smiling. You already see it. You see the flaw in Habakkuk's lament. Your sharp eyes have already picked out the problem. Habakkuk calls Judah more righteous than the Babylonians. And you know, you know Scripture which says there is no one righteous. All are sinful. Isaiah 64 puts it this way. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. God will reveal that excellent point to Habakkuk. He's going to get that to Habakkuk, but not yet today. That's part of the text we're going through next time. For today, I'd like you to set aside that truth and just enter Habakkuk's thinking with him, with him okay? Just his first question, think about it. How could you, God, are, are you becoming a bad parent How could you use such nasty, nasty people? Prophet's second question, how could God endorse such an unjust system? Go to verse 14, and here I'll read from my my normal Bible. You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. This is why they are glad and rejoice. These Babylonians are swallowing up other good people as well. By the way, the Babylonian artists... They really liked this picture that Habakkuk paints. In fact, they often depicted their king Nebuchadnezzar um, in, in, 
in a in fish outfit. Uh, it was a takeoff of the fish god Enki, which they got from the Assyrians. Anyway, long story. But notice he's got a fish headdress on and, and scales right here. And they would show him pulling a net and dragging in all the peoples of the world. That's what it's like when God uses wickedness to overcome righteousness, supposed righteousness. Years ago, uh, Herr Max and uh, Frau Meta Schlamm uh, lived, they were middle class citizens living in Berlin, Germany, with their daughters Marga and Vera. Uh, Max Schlamm, by the way, was a decorated veteran of the Great War. He was wounded for his country. After World War I ended, he moved to Berlin, opened a, a dress tailoring business, and settled down to raise his family according to Jew <clears throat> Jewish traditions. Uh, now, you may not know this, but many, many people especially religious people in the Weimar Republic of Germany, Germany in those years, they were very bothered by their country. Their country was in a state of flux and disarray. They were especially troubled, and the Schlams were especially troubled by the rampant sinfulness of their times. Get this, Herr Schlamm taught his daughters, taught, taught uh, Vera and Marga, to pray for God's cleansing, to pray for God's cleansing and healing to come on their country. And they prayed that regularly. Imagine the Schlamm's horror to discover that God's answer was the rise of Nazism and Adolf Hitler. The Schlamm's tried to flee. They were arrested uh, for trying to get out of Europe. They were caught in Holland. They were transferred to a horrible place called Bergen-Belsen. Like so many Jews and Christians and communists and gypsies interred in those wretched death camps, the Shalom family wondered how could God endorse such an unjust system? We get that things were bad, but how could he try to cleanse using this in 1995, I was honored to talk with Vera Schlamm. She was the youngest of the family, just before her death. And she related to me that the hardest struggles they faced in Bergen-Belsen were not physical. The, the, the physical was awful, but it was the spiritual questions that weighed heaviest. How could you, God? I'm going to tell you more of what I learned from Vera Schlamm later. For now, I just want you to notice this. Her Holocaust cries are the same as Habakkuk's. It's the great questions that every human has to struggle with. Is God God? If so, is he at work? If he is, then is he working good? Specifically, how could God employ such a nasty people? How could he endorse such an unjust system? And how could God allow such wretched idolatry? 16 and 17. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet. They burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? The Babylonians worship their military might. Remember, the fishing net is a metaphor for, for their, uh, their armies. These people trust in chariots. They worship what makes them great. Thank goodness we don't do that. All people do. I, I have known as a coach, I knew wrestlers and gymnasts who talked to their muscles before a meet. True story. I have met major league ball players who never, ever cleaned off their lucky batting helmet. You have surely known religious people who burned incense to some icon or some image because they were convinced that Saint X made them great. Lots of people who think they're intelligent worship their own, their own brains. There are successful men and women everywhere who worship their trophies, right? We have all seen Babylonian-type idolatry often in the mirror. We idolize what we think makes us great. Well, Habakkuk knows this phenomenon, and he knows it fits pagan people, including the Babylonians. And though he knows that God is using Babylon for his good, he can't help but wonder how God could allow such wretched idolatry. How can he allow people who, who exalt something so horrible as their conquest? Think, think of it like this. It, 
take it into your time and place, okay? Suppose you were told that the top advisor, the number one top advisor to the President of the United States, said that she turns to Mao Zedong for her inspiration. Suppose she spoke at a graduation and said, and by the way, she did, this happened. She later tried very lamely to claim it was a joke, but it was not a joke. She said Mao is her favorite political philosopher. Mao Zedong, who is anything but a philosopher. Mao, the murderer of 50 million people, the wholesale killer of Christians, the enslaver of the world's biggest and oldest culture. That's her hero? That's her fishing net? How could God allow such scary things to be happening? How could his plan include such invasive, evil idolatry? These, these are the prophet's questions. Now, after all that, Habakkuk makes the most remarkable move a human being can make. He stations himself to listen to God's word on the issues. That's the summary, by the way, on the right side of your notes. He stations himself to listen to God's word. Remember, being honest with God, acknowledging my unhappiness with the situation, it opens me to an opportunity for God to change what matters most. Not the situation. It opens me for him to change me. Right? With that in mind, read chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. This is the seminal decision in Habakkuk's life. The unhappy prophet goes to a place where he can think and listen and dedicates himself to God's words. Now, Jerusalem at the time had ramparts like this all around the massive temple complex. And it's entirely possible Habakkuk is climbing up there, maybe over here in this corner where the shofar was always blown or the other corners where they had watchmen who looked out for fire and foes. However, this could be figurative. Habakkuk could be saying, I'm climbing up on the truth of what I know to be stolid. Here I stand. I am going to stand here and wait for God's word. Either is possible. Metaphorically or tangibly, Habakkuk takes a stand to hear God. However ugly and confused and scary things appear, the prophet says, here I stand. I can do no other. And that is humble perseverance right there, folks. This is significant. Listen. If you get nothing else from this entire study of Habakkuk, please get this. In the midst of your questions, stop and listen to the Lord. Think, think back to one of the oldest stories human beings have. It's the story of Job. Did God get angry with Job whenever Job asked questions? Did he? Yes or no? No. Say no. No, he did not. That's right. Very good. He did not. When Job expressed in no uncertain terms how very displeased he was with God's plan and how horrible it was, very similar to the questions Habakkuk is asking, did God get angry? No, he did not. He welcomed the dialogue. So what was it that caused God to need to intervene, to literally appear as a tornado in Job's living room? It was when Job wouldn't shut up. He wouldn't stop long enough to listen to the word of God. He was so full of complaint, he wouldn't stop and listen. Habakkuk learned from Job, just as we need to learn from Habakkuk. Stop, look, listen, station yourself to listen to God's word. Now, that requires humility and perseverance. Think about it. You've got to care what the other party is saying if you're going to shut up and listen, which is why so few people really listen in our culture today. A friend of mine wrote me once. He said, Wayne, when my father died suddenly of a heart attack, my greatest desire was to find a vantage point high enough. He didn't mean physically high. He meant that metaphorically. Find a vantage point high enough to try and see things as God did. That was the only way to make sense of the situation. 
Again, I think Stuart Briscoe captures the thought process. I liked this quote so much I put it in your notes. Uh, he says, our big problem is we want to get his thinking, God's thinking, in line with ours. What Habakkuk is saying is this. I'm going to take all the time necessary to get my thinking in line with God's. Then when God, when, when he has Habakkuk on his tower of meditation, he can begin to declare something to him, close quote. And God does declare something to Habakkuk. God answers Habakkuk with three awesome truths that give perspective to the prophet's difficult situation. Three awesome truths. First, God clearly speaks. He's willing to go on the record and wants his word to be a broad encouragement, not just for Habakkuk, but for many others. That's the issue behind the command in verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me, write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. You know, in our age, we sometimes forget the power of clearly written words. Um, we have so much communication overload today, we forget the strength of a clearly written message. So step back with me 26 centuries in time, okay? You ready for this? There was no internet. There was no radio. There was no TV. Kids, take a deep breath. There wasn't even texting. <gasps> horrors. And yet, the ancient people communicated quite well. Now, we only have a tithe of their communication, but what we have is actually remarkably clear and well-written. In fact, I'm not trying to be cruel here, but I, I look at what I can read from what they wrote and, and the vast bulk of what we write today, and theirs is far superior. But they didn't have modern broadcast systems. So how did a, a king, a sovereign, communicate important information to everybody? There were two ways. Number one, the king would send runners, heralds, that would go to all the villages, and they would, they would proclaim, thus says the king. They would, they would have clay tablet that would be inscribed with the news, and the person would stand and say, thus says the Lord, and they would read the, the word of the Lord. The second big communication tool were stele, uh, these, these big poles. A, a steel was erected, they would erect them at major crossroads and also at entrances to the kingdom, and then the king's decree would be put on that steel. So with that in mind, read Habakkuk 2.2 again. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on the tablets so one may easily read it. Here's the really wild part, okay? In the Near East of the 6th century B.C., that was how good kings communicated. However, no God ever spoke that clearly. Gods were shrouded in mystery. They spoke in dreams and auguries, all of which had to be interpreted by a special priest. No, and I mean no ancient peoples ever had a God who wanted to communicate clearly with them. The, the God had to be, he had to be begged to speak. And then the God's words were unintelligible. In that context, do you realize how significant Habakkuk 2.2 is? God wants to communicate clearly. He's going to say significant things about all these questions Habakkuk has, questions that plague humans. And this is for broad encouragement. It's like a king's decree. God wants everyone to understand and be encouraged by his clear word. All God's people said... Amen. That's amazing. That established, God continues. Look at verse 3. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. That was for you, Claire. There's a great deal of thought in this verse. Um, your notes contain the biggest idea. God has a linear plan for history. And he's moving it exactly according to form. Now, we cannot see the end of God's plan. In fact, we're not... We can never be exactly certain and ascertain where we are in it, but that doesn't change the reality. God lines up history, moving everything toward his pre-appointed determination. Even God's terminology here is linear. Look, look up here. 
Um, end is not something that is uh, indeterminate or mushy, right? Uh, ends are clear. The, the Hebrew term ketz is a, is a conclusion toward which everything is moving. It's very similar. Those of you who are Latin speakers, very similar to the Latin phrase terminus ad chem, uh, literally the limit unto which. Each of these, ketz and terminus ad chem, refer to the goal, the, the conclusion point. When you've got a football player who has the ball in a game, what is his only desire? To get it where? Where does he want to get the ball? Across the goal line, right? That's the whole point is to get across the goal line. When God says that his game plan is going to cross the goal, no matter how long the play takes, he's laying out a linear view of history. This is very different from other views of time and space. Think about the implications. The, the implications are that we are not trapped in a hopeless cycle of reincarnation. It's not possible. Yes, there are similarities because humans are always human, but history does not repeat itself. We are not stranded on some island with Gilligan from which we will never escape, doomed to repeat the same nonsense episode after episode, right? There is an end to the story. It is scripted by God himself. History is truly his story. However, we find it scary sometimes because we can't see the end from where we are. From our little island, we can't even see past the reef around us. All we can hear is the professor droning in our ear about another failed idea. It can get frustrating, right? Not knowing the exact details of the plan. Now, here's what that does. Not being able to see the end, but knowing history is moving toward an end, causes a lot of fear in humans. It, it causes what's called fear of the unknown future. It's true of every age, and it's certainly true of ours as well. Let me just give you an example from our time, okay? Just from our time. Today, horribly, sadly... 100 Americans will die in car wrecks. 0.3 vaccinated people will contract the COVID-19 virus, the latest plague of our time. I have to say 0.3 because every four days, one person gets... Anyway, yeah, that's kind of how it works. There's not a 0.3 person. Anyway, all right. Um, so, so which of those... And by the way, by the way, of those 0.3, they have a 1 in 100,000 chance of getting a case worse than a common cold, okay? So you got a 100 people are going to die in car wrecks. You have 0.3 are going to be vaccinated but still get, get the plague. Which is going to dominate the news? Which one? The, one? the one person who gets the vaccine. Why is that? And don't pick on the news media. It's because we have a deep fear and people want to hear about, we have outsized concerns about things that we can kind of tell are there, but we don't really understand. Things that are not fully understood. Now, God's reply to Habakkuk is going to get to that conclusion. He's going to describe it in tail in chapters 2 and 3. But the big idea is right here in verse 3. God has a game plan and he will execute it perfectly. Rather than get all upset over the fact that we can't know all the details, what we need to do is trust God. Got a great note from my friend Ben Katsada, one of our life group leaders. He said this. He said, Wayne, Habakkuk teaches us it's okay to wrestle with God, but to do so humbly. As you said when we studied chapter 1, lament, don't whine. When I find myself questioning God, I remind myself of God's words in Habakkuk 1.5 and in Isaiah 55. These texts bring me comfort, reminding me that he is sovereign and I am not. Close quote. Brilliant. Here's the Isaiah passage that Ben referenced. Let's, let's read it together. For my, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as, high, for as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Which leads to verse 4. 
where Yahweh repeats the principle that salvation is not through human might, but through trust in the Lord. Verse 2, verse 4, our last verse. Look, his ego is inflated. He's without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Salvation is found through trusting God. What my Bible translates integrity is a form of yushar. Um, This is a really funky construction. In the Hebrew, let me, let, me just, let me just tell you the weirdest part of it. Yushar is a verb, okay? But right here, it's, it's conscripted and forced into use as a noun. It's a really strange arrangement, and God's doing it on purpose, of course. Why? To humorously emphasize the point. Uh, yushar means, means uh, right or upright. It's used either of posture or of thought, and here, of course, it's of thought. The point is, the Babylonian, this wretched person that God is using, is not right in the head. The, the way this is written, it would be almost exactly as if I said in English, he not be right in the thinker, right? Now, that's funny, but it's funny on purpose because you get the point. He not be right. He doesn't think straightly. Right? The person who trusts his own power is not right in the head. By contrast, look up here, the Hebrew be'emunat, be'emunat is what we render by his faith. Now, emunah is a steadfast term. It means something that is firm and secure, something on which one stands in confidence. Again, here's the theme. Here I stand. God says that his truth is trustworthy. The prideful ignore that, and they're not right. But the wise person will believe, will stand on God's truth, and thus be made righteous. Remember poor Virashlam? He's trapped with her family in the concentration camp. It was in that horrible place that Vera and her family began to think about these things. They were forced to walk the path traveled by Habakkuk. They were forced to go through the three great questions that plague all humanity. Three wonderful questions through which everyone should walk. Is God good? Is God God? Is, is he at work? And is he working good? Somehow the Shlams were spared. They lived through the war. They made their way to America after the war. They flourished. Uh, actually, Vera became a medical doctor in Los Angeles And in the U.S., they continued thinking through what they had learned of life. And they reached this conclusion. Only God can be really trusted. Only his word is worth standing on. Not culture, not society, not human opinion. And and wonderfully, all four members of the Shlam family began to study the scriptures. And they became convinced from the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth has to be the promised Messiah. They all became believers in Jesus After praying her trust in Jesus, Vera described her feelings. She said, I felt numb, absolutely numb. Years of struggling and searching as I experienced the wrath of man and the patience of God had finally led me to the Lord's grace. An hour or two later, that numbness was replaced with an inner peace and bubbling joy, which was literally from out of this world. I felt the the perfection that only Jesus can bring to an empty human heart, close quote. The righteous live and are made righteous by what, everybody? Made righteous by faith. Not by our attitudes, not by our actions. We, like the Shlams, like Habakkuk, like Abraham, we are made holy by faith alone. And, and often, God uses the cliffs of life to bring us to the place where we think these things through and we learn to trust Him. All God's people said? All right, now think about this. About 500 years ago, this guy, the Polish astronomer Nicolaus Copernicus, he developed the heliocentric view of the universe. He recognized and he proved that God made the planets to revolve around the sun. 
In the heavily humanistic world of the 16th century, that idea was not popular. By the way, you will hear people, even in textbooks, foolishly claim that this was a religious issue, the persecution of Copernicus. It wasn't. It was a humanistic issue. Just like today, people in the 16th century wanted to believe that the world revolved around them, right? The Roman church was so humanistic at that point that it even censured Copernicus, not on biblical grounds, but on humanistic ones. But Copernicus was right. And he had a huge impact. Look, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Hubble, Einstein, they all built their wonderful work on Copernicus's brilliant perspective that we are not the center of the system. In the same way, Habakkuk's dialogue has huge implications for you who are New Testament Christians. Habakkuk's conversation with God has a massive reach across the breadth and the depth of human theology. You can see Habakkuk's mark throughout all of your New Testament. The book of Habakkuk developed a God-centered view of human suffering. Now that, of course, is not popular. You know this, right? Hurting people like to think the world revolves around us. But Habakkuk's correct. It revolves around God. And thus his impact is massive. I want to walk you through four impacts in your New Testament. First, the Apostle Peter makes a stirring statement. He's writing to suffering Christians, and and he makes a beautiful comment where he calls these Christians to humble perseverance. And Peter's call is rooted in Habakkuk 2.1. The whole idea is drawn from Habakkuk 2. Listen, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm just going to read parts of it. You can read the rest on your own. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Resist the enemy, firm in the faith, knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered for a little while. Habakkuk was humble enough to persevere in his dialogue with God, to stand alert on his rampart, and he was rewarded with the truth that God would work everything out according to his plan. Peter picks up that baton, he writes to a bunch of persecuted Christians, and he says, Habakkuk got it right. Humble yourself, persevere, listen to God's word. It will all work out by his great plan. Peter Peter looks ahead to the very last chapter of Habakkuk, we're not going to go there yet, and and, and he says, you're going to be grateful for all this in the end. It, it's, like, it's like a kiddo complaining about her mother. I, I wish I had a dollar for every time one of my small friends has said to me something like this. Pass away, my mom is so cruel. She loves me down with chores. She requires me to go to church, makes me write thank you notes to grandma, limits my screen time, and she won't buy me a new PlayStation. Right? So many times I have heard versions of that. Now, after, I've lived long enough that I get to see how this turns out. After the horrible sufferings of childhood... What do we see? What do we see? We see a beautiful woman who is all grown up, and she's thanking her mom for having been such a wonderful developer of her life, right? Mom's development program makes her grateful. The idea of learning from the past, second thing, also grounded in Habakkuk. Remember Habakkuk 2.2, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on the tablet so one may easily read it. God's decision to write his word for Habakkuk allowed later people to grow. It was a wild, remember, it's a wild concept when Habakkuk wrote God's words down, but it becomes a big part of New Testament thought. The Apostle Paul picks up the idea, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These things happened to them, he's talking about people in the past, as examples. They were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Do you see? We can learn from the past because God has written truth down for us. In fact, we can run with God's news to the village square, to the borders of the kingdom, because we have instruction straight from God. 
All these New Testament truths begin in Habakkuk. Here's the third one. The New Testament understanding that God is moving history toward resolution comes straight from Habakkuk 2.3. Look, look, Paul takes that truth. He says this, Romans 8.25. Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Paul's expounding the positives of waiting for God's final redemption. We can't see it, but we are so eager for the day that God takes us home to heaven. And that is the lesson we're supposed to learn from our times of questioning the Lord. That's, what, that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of what, everybody? Glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. God is moving all toward a conclusion, and because of Jesus, we delight in that even when we have to hang here and wait. All God's people said? Finally, the very New Testament concept of salvation comes through Habakkuk. The Apostle Paul has a a brilliant doctrine of justification by faith, and it's grounded in the Abrahamic covenant. But a lot of people miss this. Paul's doctrine of justification by faith from the Abrahamic covenant comes to us across the bridge of Habakkuk 2.4. This is really important. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the Abrahamic covenant. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written. And here's Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by what, everybody? Faith. Paul says a person is justified, that is made right before God on the basis of faith, not any works on that person's part. He thinks this is so significant. You know what he does? He quotes that same verse. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4 two other times uh, in Galatians 3 and in Philippians 3. There's incredible depth to Paul's salvation theology, and you miss it if you don't recognize the way this truth comes to us through Habakkuk. Habakkuk goes to God crying out, life isn't fair! And God reveals truth to Habakkuk such that he ends by saying, thank God life isn't fair. As we're going to learn later in chapter 2, if life were fair, we'd all be in serious trouble. So so when Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, he has all this in mind. Paul's not just noting the economy that we're saved as Abraham was by God's grace through faith. That's great. But he's rejoicing that life is not based on our works. Paul is saying, thank God life isn't fair. Paul quotes Habakkuk to ensure that we remember that we don't deserve our salvation in Jesus. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. All God's people said? Pray with me, please. Would you pray? I I tell you what, if you're able and you wish, uh, I'm going to kneel, and I encourage you to do the same. There are times where praying is just different when physically I can match spiritually. Getting up's no fun, but uh, it can still be good to do. So if you wish, kneel with me and let's pray. Let me direct you in prayer. Turn to God Almighty who moves history. He really does move history to his end. And ask him to help you trust him. Confess the ways that you have not done so. That you have made a, uh, a me-centric universe. Confess, too, how you have um, neglected to learn from the past. God has written down for you 
your own past or, or scripture or, or other lessons. Ask God to help you learn. The seminal moment in Habakkuk's life is where he said, I will station myself in my rampart to see how I'll be reproved. He humbly persevered so he could hear God's word. You have God's word right in front of you all the time. Confess to God how horrible it is, the, the lack of time you spent listening to it. Be honest. Thank God that he has spoken so clearly. And ask him to give you humility and perseverance so that you stand on and listen to his words. The righteous live by faith. Confess to God how you have, if you have, and I would imagine like me you have, you've tried to be righteous outside of faith. The, the New Testament calls it relying on the flesh. We, we, we try to be holy outside of our, our connection of trusting God. And it's nothing but filthy rags. Recognize it. Go to God with it. Thank God that you can trust him, even hanging off the branch. And in that, you are made righteous. Speaking of which, if you are studying with me today, here or wherever you are, whenever you are studying with us, if you've never believed on Jesus as Savior, I, I encourage you to, to change that right now. The family door is wide open, but it is a narrow door, and it is by faith in Jesus alone. Stop relying on the branch. Stop thinking of yourself as a center of the universe. Quit burning incense to the things that you think make you strong. All that is really filthy rags. God loves you, even though you and I don't deserve it. God the Son, Jesus, died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead so that if you trust him, you're made righteous. And you can actually, you can actually be part of the family of a holy God. Trust him right now. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand, please. Everybody else is still praying, but let me see you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Father, I pray for all these believers in Christ that we will let go and learn by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.